we are. Matthew 13, and it's, we've been uh, sort of uh, preaching on the parables, but sometimes the explanation comes a little later, and so we've been putting those together. So now it may seem like we're backtracking a little because we've already had the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But we're going to pull out verses 31 through 35 today. Now, before we do, um, we haven't told a lot of people. In fact, I just recently got approval from the elders, but I am putting together a Sunday school class for the spring. It will be for adults and college students uh, about church history. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I'm going to call it Heroes, Heretics, and Holy Wars. So if you're intrigued, if that sounds good to you, please attend. I'll take the first five months, probably just January to May, to lay out a quick overview of the major trends and figures of church history, from Pentecost to Pope Francis, uh, who was elected this past year. And we'll just survey quickly. And since I've been studying church history so much recently, it's been in my thoughts. I've been uh, thinking of it as I was preparing this sermon. And what came to mind were some stories. And I want to go ahead and uh, talk through a few from both biblical and church history. Listen carefully to see if you can identify the thread that unites them the common element that runs through each of these stories. Okay, I've got about six of them. So number one, from biblical history, we have Abraham. Because the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, started, through, started with one man, and an unlikely man at that, one who was past childbearing, as was his wife. And yet, he had a child, and that child had a child who then had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, who then spread out throughout Israel, multiplied and created a powerful nation under David and Solomon. Now think in church history of the spread of Christianity that started with the apostles. And so we have apostles like Thomas who took the gospel to India, or the Apostle Philip, who took it to North Africa. And then, four centuries later, you've probably heard of Patrick, who took the gospel to Ireland. You may not have heard of the ninth century Cyril and Methodius, two brothers who took the gospel to Bulgaria and converted King Boris, influenced the entire culture for Christ. So nations with very little Christian influence heard and accepted the gospel by the influence of a few key people or a team. That's number two. Number three, story, very familiar. From this past week, we celebrated Reformation Day, the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. The beginning of the Reformation. That was a little more complicated than that, which you'll find out if you come to my Sunday school class. There had been men like John Wycliffe in England and John Huss in Bohemia. Uh, they had been sounding the bell for Reformation. 
for a long time, but essentially from very small beginnings of men in different countries questioning the abuses of the church, the Protestant Reformation exploded into history. And now we count about 30,000 Protestant denominations. Number four, in the 1730s, a man named William Tennant wanted his four sons and other young men in the area to get a theological education. So he started the Log College. Maybe you've heard of that. They held cabins in a log cabin. I mean, classes in a log cabin in Pennsylvania. It grew, expanded, moved to New Jersey where it became Princeton. Well, which despite its modern, shall we say, non-biblical uh, incarnation, uh, but Princeton for a long time in the 19th century turned out some of the finest theological minds and church leaders. Number five, more recently, a young man named Rick felt called to start a church in Southern California in the 1980s. And so he went door to door talking to people about their lives and about God and gathered a small group that grew and grew. Today, Saddleback Church has over 20,000 people in it. I've heard it's the 10th largest church in America. And that young man, Rick Warren, has huge influence, and he's sold a few books. Now, much closer to home, although on a bit of a different scale, 22 years ago, a few families had a longing for a Reformed church that preached the gospel in Loudoun County. So they started meeting for prayer and Bible study. They called a first pastor. They became a particularized church. They lost the pastor. They lost a lot of people. They called a new pastor. They started growing. They called a second pastor. They kept growing. Called two more pastors. And here we are, 22 years later, with 300 people about and a half million dollar budget. And if you've seen the welcome video on our, on our website, uh, this, is, this, is, this is my best Phoebe wrist impression. We're now a growing, vivacious PCA church. <laughs> I got Mark's... Uh, approval for, for doing that. Not Phoebe. She's not here. She'll get to listen to that. So have you seen the common thread? I hope it jumped out at you. What connects these stories and the pattern of how God has worked through history? Because we see so many times things start small and they grow. God takes something tiny, someone's idea, someone's work, someone's small group or organization, and through the years grows it until it becomes a much larger work. Now, occasionally God starts large, doesn't bother with the many years of growing and nurturing, and, and sometimes he starts small and it stays small. Maybe sometimes it starts large and he prunes it down. There's a lot of ways God works. But there is a recurring pattern of the kingdom in starting small. And the power of the gospel and the spirit blossoming that small thing into a larger work. And Jesus told us that's what we could expect. 
Today's passage gives us Jesus' understanding of this trend. And to remember the original context of what he's doing, would this have resonated with the disciples? I mean, they've been walking around with Jesus, seeing some amazing stuff, hearing some really wise and powerful things. But you know they had to be thinking, when is this thing going to take off? When do we stop just walking around and really start taking charge and building something that will compete with these other religions and challenge Rome? We're so small. And i got to think there was a, a natural impatience to see God's kingdom in all of its glory and the victory over all that opposed it. They had to feel small and limited. But Jesus wanted them to know that they should expect small and slow and gradual growth. So let's take a look at Matthew 13. 31 through 35. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, give us wisdom as we approach these parables that may seem difficult at first. We grasp for significance then and now. How does this relate to our lives? How does this relate to your church? Teach us the ways of the kingdom, Lord. Help us to have great understanding. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, these couple parables here, short and easily confused. Uh, This is actually the third parable about sowing seeds just in Matthew 13. Plus, Jesus uses mustard seeds later in Matthew and says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, and so we have to separate this out. This is the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And he also talks about leaven in other places, the leaven of the Pharisees. And so the first thing we need to see is these are very distinct parables. And this passage gives us a lot to reflect on. And a lot to count on in Jesus' description of the ways that the kingdom works. And the first thing we see is the promise of growth. The promise of growth. Verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, I didn't know much about, I don't, I don't know anything about gardening and planting, and, but apparently the mustard seed, not technically the smallest, but probably in the category of the smallest seed that then grows into a bush that is often sometimes just four feet, but can get up to eight to ten, even up to 15 feet. So it's, it's definitely, as Jesus says, larger than the garden plants and actually a tree. Large enough for the birds to come and make a home. And I read commentaries that said, now there might be a real complicated allusion to Ezekiel, um, and that the birds might be the Gentiles. Um, but I, I don't want to stretch parables too much. That may be, this may be true, but let's, let's go with the point. The main point of this parable is that it starts small, and it grows large, unexpectedly. Now, maybe you're like me, and you often feel that you aren't growing fast enough in your spiritual walk. How many times do you feel that your spiritual growth is too slow, that you're not enough of a model Christian, whatever that looks like? Or maybe you look around at this church or the Christian community in our area, or maybe even the American church as a whole. And it's easy to think, why isn't this bigger? Why isn't God working in a greater way? Why aren't there more Christians at my school? Why aren't there more Christians in my workplace, in my neighborhood? This is supposed to be a Christian nation. I don't see it all the time. Well, let's take a look at a few things that this parable implies. Number one, gradual growth is the norm. As we, as we go through these, we're going to have sort of uh, dual application to ourselves and to the community, the church around us, uh, the culture even. But the important thing is not how big you are when you start, it's whether you're planted and rooted well. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's a beautiful imagery. That when your roots are in Christ, you live in Him. And you are gradually strengthened. But number two, progress is gradual because it is difficult. We have a strong enemy who hates kingdom growth. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, fight the good fight for nothing, does he? It's a struggle. Growth 
And maturity in Christ is hard. And yet God promises in 1 John, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because number three, victory is inevitable. It is assured. Full growth is assured from the moment that the seed is sown, despite what it initially looks like, despite the odds against it becoming large, and despite the opposition it may encounter as it develops. Jesus is essentially saying what we hear at different places in different ways. In Philippians 1.6 says it, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The Holy Spirit holds us fast and promises that He will keep working on us. So the first parable is about growth. The second one gives us the promise of change. The promise of change, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now I didn't know three measures doesn't maybe not sound like much. But apparently it's about 50 pounds, which would feed 100 people. Plenty of bread. And yeast, leaven, is often used negatively in Scripture. But not here. Leavening is a positive thing. It's a transforming and growing agent. And so Jesus' point is that the kingdom will grow through an unseen internal spiritual dynamic. The change is hidden from sight. It happens inside of people. God works unseen but expansively inside each one of us. Every one of true believers, followers of Jesus. You are not fully, you're not given full Christian maturity when you first come to faith in Christ. I think many of us can testify to that. It starts small. You still fall into old habits. You don't understand everything. You get discouraged. But gradually, the Spirit and the Gospel expand and completely change. And as with individuals, the Gospel also works in the culture spreading and expanding as faithful believers tell the truth about God, about sin and redemption, about good and evil. As the gospel takes hold and the Christian worldview is advanced, the culture changes. Families change. Marriages are strengthened. Neighborhoods are safer. Companies function more ethically. The yeast works its way through the whole batch. And that's a powerful thing. Reflecting on culture a little bit, what drives media and news today? I see a lot where they're trying to see who 
and what are influencing things, right? A good, a good news story identifies a person who's doing something that affects a great number of people or a trend that looks like it's changing the way we live. And so we get these articles identifying new things happening and we get end of the year uh, lists trying to figure out who had the biggest influence and changed the world the most. Who was the person of the year, right? And very, very occasionally, the, the media will include a Rick Warren or a Billy Graham on those lists. Or they'll identify a Christian trend that's important. I remember, I believe it was Time Magazine said, hey, the new Calvinism is an important new trend that you need to keep your eye on. But for the most part, God works unseen in the world. His hand of providence is constantly working and changing things. But even believers have a hard time identifying the ways that he's working, much less unbelievers who don't want to believe it or who will attribute it to something else. And that's okay. Because Jesus reminded us that the kingdom works quietly and unobtrusively, just like the yeast that worked through the dough. Someday, on that day, we will understand all that is hidden and underneath. We will see God's activity and the influence of the kingdom in this world and we'll understand our part in it and God's part in us. Now, following these two parables, Matthew connects Jesus' teaching style and his content with the Old Testament, with an Old Testament citation to show us his revealed wisdom. The last blank should be revealed wisdom. Verses 34 and 35. Again, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And if you looked at your footnotes, you know very quickly that this is a, from Psalm 78. Uh, it's a quote or actually closer to a paraphrase. And we can look up Psalm 78 and read it through. It's a great psalm about God delivering Israel despite their continued disobedience. But I think the main thing that we need to know from Matthew linking Jesus' teaching and citing this reference here is this. That Jesus isn't just a storyteller. He's not Garrison Keillor, a prairie home companion. Do, you, do we still know who that is? Um, Older folks, like Jeff, know that. Garrison Keillor just spins these very folksy, cute stories. Um, Jesus isn't just that. Jesus isn't your Uncle Joe or somebody at the Thanksgiving table telling you tales of when they grew up and how different it is today. This 
is the Messiah. This is the creator of the universe. Giving you the most important truths that you need to know. These stories contain revelation that God had kept hidden from the beginning of the world until then. And they were fortunate enough to hear them firsthand. And we are fortunate enough that they were recorded and passed down to us. These are strong doctrinal truths, but they're packaged in an easy-to-hear story. I don't know if you like to read systematic theology textbooks in your spare time. I'm sure some of you do. For all my years of seminary and reading those books, I still appreciate books that start with stories that draw me in and then connect and explain propositional truth behind them. The parables, foundational for our life. And the revealed wisdom from these two parables is that God's kingdom in human experience has been and always will be small to start with, but with great promise. And the biggest thing I'd like to remind us as we start thinking of how this applies to our lives is don't despise small. Because I think naturally we want bigger, bolder, louder in so much of our lives, don't we? We're, if it's exciting and big, then it must demand our attention and our money, our allegiance. And, and often the, the church follows suit we feel like we need to make church bigger, brighter, faster paced. Our Christian conferences and festivals need to compete with the world. Now we could go a long way critiquing that, and it's not all bad. Big is fine. But Jesus reminds us that small is a great place to start because you are small. A great story from Louis Giglio, who runs the Passion Ministry and is a pastor in Atlanta. Uh, one of his books, he talks about preparing to meet with a couple music executives, higher-ups, bigwigs. And he was pretty nervous about this. They wanted to partner with him with his Passion Worship Records. And uh, his initial strategy was just going to be, I'm going to present all the great things about my ministry and... Uh, the strengths, the wonderful artists that I've worked with, the success we've had, and the, the unlimited future potential we have. But then he felt like God was telling him that he was small. So he thought, that's a great strategy, Lord. Tomorrow when they show up, I'll just go super low profile, and I'll go in acting all small, and just when their defenses are down, Wham, I'll jump up and surprise them with how strong we are. But then he felt the Lord saying, essentially, no, I'm not saying just act small. I'm saying you are small. And when the truth of that sank in, that just reminding himself 
You're not a big deal. He felt this huge weight off his back. That he didn't have all that pressure to impress people. In contrast, I recently saw a sign for a church that I hadn't heard of. And I, I, I network a lot with folks around here, so I was sort of surprised I hadn't heard of it. So I went to their website, and I was surprised to see that they had uh, like a full staff and a ton of leaders, programs for every age, ministries for managing your money, and, and a, a full spate of counseling and small groups. And I thought, wow, how have I not heard of this? You know, they must have been around for 15 or 20 years. Best I can tell, they've been around for one or two. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, be all things to all men. You know, all right, give us a full slate of things to, to attract people in this area. But I wonder if they missed a lot of the joy of growing from small and growing organically. And it kind of reminds me of how embarrassed we are to be small in our churches. I mean, guilty as charged. I feel that. I have friends and relatives at much larger churches, and I often feel sort of implied when they visit. Why is your church still meeting in a school? Why are you so small? Why aren't you big by now? course forget the size that we're like we're forget the fact that we're three or four times the average church in america which is about 75 um so it's all relative i know but even if we are small maybe god's design is for that don't despise that because we all know that temptation whether it's with ourselves or something we're involved in, our church, uh, work. We want to build ourselves up and let everyone around us know how important we are. How what we're doing is really wonderful, even if we make it sound that we're very humble about it. Right? But the real truth is we are tiny. We are small. In the span of eternity, we are a speck of dust, nothing. God is accomplishing things, amazing things throughout the span of eternity. We're just a small, tiny part of that. He will accomplish things around, maybe even through us. But we have to see ourselves as grafted onto this great work that He's doing. When we start with the premise that God needs us to do something great, to get things right so He can start working, we are off. We are nothing. But God loves nothings. And we're not the only ones. Because Jesus embraced being small, being nothing. That's the way of Jesus. I mean, you can't get much more small and humble than to go from being the king of the universe to becoming an eight-pound baby born in a feeding trough in a small town among a defeated, conquered people group 
and then spending the first 30 years of your life in obscurity. And then after three years of building a ministry and gathering a huge following, despite saying hard things that made people take off on you, after all that, you allow yourself to be captured, tortured, and killed. You can't get much smaller than that. Your followers are devastated. They think that all is lost until they hear the life-changing, earth-shattering good news that you defeated death and are no longer in the grave. And following the resurrection, the Christian church had the message, the plan, the power to spread the gospel to the whole world. God took the seed of Christ's obedient death and the power of his resurrection and planted the church that has grown to every corner of the world. Jesus made himself small, but used that to grow the kingdom immeasurably. And finally, we have to recognize that obedience is, after all, more important than size. You might have read an article that came out. A lot of people posted it on Facebook. Uh, it's on ligonier.org. If you want to read it, it's by Kevin Young, D. Young. It's called The Glory of Plotting. The Glory of Plotting. Two words that you don't generally put together. Plotting is just methodically working and doing what you're supposed to. We generally think of plotting people as boring people. And we want to avoid being boring, but there is glory in plotting Christians. And the main idea in the article is that today it's very trendy. It's very exciting for young Christians to talk about being revolutionaries, right? And he cited one, he cites one reader who said, uh, writer, said, we need to raise up a million Bonos. You know, the lead singer of U2. Uh, people who will launch out and start bold, exciting, big projects that attack the social problems of today, like Bono has attacked the global AIDS epidemic. And he said, as, as great as what he has done, and that's a great way to leverage your fame, certainly. With all due respect, what's harder? To be an idolized rock star who travels around the world touting good causes and chiding governments for their lack of foreign aid? Or to be a line worker at General Motors with four kids and a mortgage who tithes to his church, sings in the choir. He said it, not me. I didn't add that. Serves on the school board and supports a Christian relief agency and a few missionaries from his disposable income. What we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. That's my dream for the church. I'm still quoting De Young. A multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. 
The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plotting consistency. The final quote, he says, Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Which is a great book by Eugene Peterson. But I love that article, and I love the idea behind it. Because... We see the small things that we do advance the kingdom. Are you telling me that bringing a meal to a grieving family advances the kingdom? Yeah, I am. Are you saying that reading and talking about the scriptures with my family advances the kingdom? Most definitely. Are you saying that inviting people into my conversations, inviting them into my life, into my home for a meal, advances the kingdom? Yeah. That praying for someone or writing a note of encouragement or saying no to temptation or any of a hundred other little things can advance the kingdom? Yes and amen. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God advances in a highly unlikely manner through ordinary people hidden away, not seen, not recognized, doing their small, ordinary things. But when done in obedience to Jesus and to the glory of God, the church and God's kingdom advances. Take a moment to thank the Lord for the ways He works in our lives, in our church, in our culture. And then I'll close. Lord Jesus, thank you for your parables, for the wisdom that flowed from your mouth, opening up things that no one had known, that God had kept hidden, but that you revealed. That we would not understand the kingdom, we would not understand the way you work in people who were your enemies, people who were against you, that you call to faith because you died for them. Lord, thank you that redemption is ours and that you start small in us and yet the Holy Spirit works in us, grows us, walks 
alongside of us as we are rooted in you. And we progress in our Christian walk. Faith comes to maturity. And thank you that you promise as much for your kingdom going out in the world. That we have so many examples from church history of you doing that. And you promise to do that even now. It may not look exactly the same everywhere. But where your word is preached, where you are faithfully honored, the kingdom advances in big ways, in small ways. The little things we do help us to recognize that any act of faithful obedience can be multiplied by you. Lord God, thank you for these wonderful promises. And thank you that today we get to eat and drink of you and be reminded of the great salvation that is ours because of the cross, because of your love and mercy. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.